Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is August 26, 2013, and this is episode 1194 of the Survival Podcast. Uh, it is Monday, so this is a listener feedback show. Today's a little bit of a hybrid. There'll be some listener feedback. In fact, most of it will be listener feedback, but there'll be a little bit uh, of some stuff that I just want to update you guys on what's going on. It's some really, really cool stuff. Um, this Saturday morning, I got to help somebody do something that was amazing. I'll tell you about that. And uh, it was uh, one of the best days of my life, honestly, Saturday this weekend. And it's gotten me locked on some visions for the future. And I've got some great things going on I want to share with you guys today. Before I do that, though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one today is KnifeKits.com. Hey, if you want to learn how to make knives, get over to KnifeKits.com. You can get a book or a DVD and some frames and some handle material and some pins and stuff like that. And you can make a knife almost... Almost as easy as a snap-together model like you might have done when you were as a kid. You can make your own Kydex sheets. You can do anything you want. If you're a master bladesmith, though, and you want O1 tool steel or Damascus uh, Damascus steel or some sort of exotic steel or exotic handle material, it's something you don't even think you can get, you can probably get it there. If somebody's made a knife out of it, they probably had it. Check them out today at knifekits.com. And remember, they do do a discount for the Member Support Brigade. Next up today is Backwoods Home Magazine. I, I, I really always do this. I just think sometimes I'm just going to give them a regular plug, but I always tell the story because it's so true. And it's so meaningful to me to be working with Backwoods Home today. I've been reading Backwoods Home since 1993. 1993 when I got out of the Army. I used to walk to a Starbucks in the area that I lived in because I really needed to save money, including you know a few bucks on gas here and there. And uh, but I didn't want to be a freeloader, so I would go to Starbucks and I would buy you know like a big coffee and I would sit there like all day um, doing research, learning things, reading books, reading magazines, and uh, you know put everything back on the shelf and walk out. And Backwoods Home was one of the magazines that I that I read when I was doing that. And uh, when I, you know, kind of got on my feet, they were one of the first magazines. In fact, I, w- I would say this: Backwoods Home was probably the first magazine I ever subscribed to as an adult. You know, like something not something my parents got and I read or my parents got for me. Like that was the first magazine subscription ever. Today they work with me uh, as a sponsor, and I get to work with people and interview people like Jackie Clay and Masada Ayub, and it's just awesome. It's like working with people that you never thought you'd even have a face to face conversation with. Um, great folks, great magazine, self reliance, self sufficiency from the libertarian angle. Uh, really a great group of guys, great group of folks over there. Check them out today, Backwoods Home Magazine at backwoodshome.com, and they also have a special deal for members of the Support Brigade. So if you're not a subscriber yet and you're going to become one, make sure you check the benefits area of your MSB. Good segue to the MSB. If you haven't yet joined the Member Support Brigade, please do so. Brief outline for new listeners. Member Support Brigades are where you can support the show at 18.3 cents per episode is how the math works out. There's discounts to over 40 vendors there. Every episode of the Survival Podcast ever produced is in zip files so that you can get them all conveniently. There's some video content available nowhere else. There's over $200 worth of free ebooks that you can download on day one. It's $50 a year, 5 bucks a month, you know, $30 for six months. There's all different membership terms you can choose. Automatically renews unless you cancel. It's a great program. We have thousands of satisfied members, and uh, I try to continue to build value in the MSB every day. I've got some stuff that will come in September that you'll be pretty impressed with, I think, when you see what I'm going to be adding to the MSB. Anyway, uh, 
Make sure, again, when you're dealing with any of our sponsors, you check the benefits section of the MSB first. Not every sponsor does a discount, but most do. Again, you want to go into your benefits section of the MSB. Military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, active duty or prior service, and first responders like EMTs, paramedics, and firefighters. All of you guys qualify for a service discount. Just email me with service discount in the subject line, and I'll respond to you. Uh, with a discount code. Just give me like one or two sentences telling me who you are and what you're doing, or if you're prior service, who you are and what you did. And uh, with that, I do have the housekeeping wrapped up, and I want to talk about some cool stuff today. I want to start out with like something that's like a blast from the past, something we've talked about and did sort of kind of started and then went away, and it's, it's kind of started again and went away. AgriTrue. Uh, we found an actual developer that actually develops pretty cool, uh, who, who's a partner in the, in the, uh, the corporation now, AgriTrue Inc., and uh, it looks like we're on track. It looks like we are going to, and I don't know when, but we're going to, you know, sometime in the reasonable future, be able to release AgriTrue as an actual product. Now, what is AgriTrue for those that haven't been around for the two and a half years this thing has languished? It's an alternative to organic. It will be a producer self-certifying system where producers can say there's certain things we will not ever do. And then here's the things we do beyond that. And you'll be able to find producers of food that you can buy from. And if you buy from them, let's say, through a small grocer or a farmer's market or somewhere, they're not there. There'll be a way that just with your smartphone, you can scan their product and see exactly who produced your food and get questions answered about it. Like, you know, what type of soil retention program does this farmer use? If that's important to you. If not, you can just find out, you know, Would they be conformed to USDA organic if that's what's important to you? Because organic already certified producers can add that to their profile. So you can find maybe beyond organic plus organic. Uh, it's a great idea. It's something that we've been working on a long time. It's a free market solution to something that the government has ruined. And I'm very, very pleased to tell you I think we're going to not only get this done, but like all of the, the, the hurdles that we went through with multiple developers that picked it up ran with it for like a month and then dropped it and then just like didn't get it done. Um, I think that happened three times in two years. It was so we could find the right guy. The guy we've got now, this site isn't just going to be a nice site. This is going to be an awesome site. It's going to adapt to mobile devices. You're not going to have to have an app for it. If you're on a mobile device, it'll just work. I mean, this is going to be great, and I wanted to give you guys an update on um, AgriTrue. I've got some other stuff I want to talk about that's going on. But before I do that, I want to go ahead and get into the show. Somebody sent me an article um, that I'm not going to read. I'm going to give you a synopsis of it. But it's on the American Free Press, and it says, Hungary sheds bankers' shackles. And I'll read a little bit of it to you. Uh, Hungary is making a history of the first order, not since the 1930s, and Germany has a major European country dared to escape from the clutches of the Rothschild-controlled international banking cartels. This is stupendous news that encourage nationalist patriots worldwide to increase the fight for freedom from financial tyranny. Um, and basically it goes into some things, and I'm going to play a news clip, clip off of RT for you today. I'll put a link to this article. Um, the I... I Maybe it's just it's the only example the guy can find economically. But the guy that wrote this article seems sort of enamored with, you know, fascist Germany, national socialist Germany, uh, which I don't think has... And, and the reason I'm not going to read the whole article is I don't want it to turn anybody off of what's going on in Hungary and the good and the bad about it I'm going to cover because it has nothing to do with Nazis. 
Or, from what I can see, it has nothing to do with fascism. Nationalism is a component of fascism, uh, but it doesn't mean that anybody that's a nationalist is a fascist. I, I guess some people would think that, but uh, anyway, let me play this uh, this uh, article or this uh, report for you from Russia today, and then I'll be back and give you my additional thoughts on it. Hungary is about to pay off its debt to the International Monetary Fund and then wants the creditor gone. The country was saved by the Washington-based group with a $25 billion loan five years ago but isn't renewing the aid in order to avoid closer scrutiny of its policies. Alexei Yaroshevsky looks at how Budapest is cutting loose. This Hungarian family can now enjoy picking a pram for their soon-to-be-born child. When the global recession reached the country, they struggled to repay their mortgage. But thanks to a government support program, their flat now belongs to them, and they've saved at least 10,000 euro. Uh, in that time, uh, we felt that uh, we are in a very critical situation. The government is, is now quite strong, uh, so uh, what we are seeing, uh, there are lots of steps. But look at Hungary's economy of late, and you'll be hard-pressed to find much to be optimistic about. The economy is now faring better than during the recession, but still most of the important development figures are in negative territory, while inflation is even higher than in the crisis years. The country's opposition firmly believes Hungary would stagnate without EU aid. Hungary is a net recipient of EU funds, and this is very important, 97% of all the new developments are today financed from EU money. However, seeing what's happening in Greece and Spain, Budapest is not keen on grabbing the hands of the international lenders. And in this case, it goes beyond merely the bravado rhetoric often voiced by the country's prime minister. There are literally 30 steps between the building of the National Bank of Hungary and the head office of the International Monetary Fund in Budapest. But that is as close as they get. A letter from one building to another at the end of July said that Hungary no longer required the services of the IMF and that its employees must leave the country as soon as possible. The country's deputy economics minister is tight-lipped on any kind of open hostility towards Brussels, but acknowledges that what the EU bureaucrats are offering does not suit Budapest. His message is we can handle it on our own. The Greece uh, debt level is, uh, according to GDP, after these two bailouts and restructuring and everything, is 160%. In Hungary, below 80%. The European averages know about uh, 85%. We are able to finance the public debt uh, on the market. We have to introduce the reforms which make the country more competitive. And that is what we have done in the last uh, couple of years. And I think they are the good basis uh, to, to have an independent economic policy. Next year, Hungary will host parliamentary elections, and some say the hardline stance with the EU may be part of a political campaign by the right-wing leadership. But analysts are not ruling out that should Viktor Orban's government be re-elected, the prime minister may take his standoff with Brussels to a completely new level, by initiating a referendum on leaving the European Union altogether. Alexei Roshevsky, RT, reporting from Budapest in Hungary. Okay, there's some things not being said there um, about how this money was repaid. What Hungary did was they went and took full control over their own currency, the forint. And even though they're part of the EU, they don't use the euro. They use the forint. 
And by adjusting the exchange rate of the forint against the euro to their own advantage, we're able to devalue their own currency a la Argentina and pay off the debt with cheaper money because they just created it because they wanted to. In other words, they've kind of gone into a fiat model um, instead of a debt-backed model, which is not completely the case yet because they're still using fractional reserve banking and things like that, but they are controlling it on their own independent of our uh, involvement through the IMF. And they're eyeballing, basically telling the EU to go cram, uh, cram it up their cram hole and... Uh, <laughs> And that may very well happen if the, the current prime minister is reelected in the next election cycle. And their trajectory is towards one of, we own our own currency, we'll manage our own currency, thank you. We don't need you, we don't want you, and if we need more money, we'll print it. Um, this can be good or disastrous, okay? It, it's, it, it really can, and I know there's people that don't think there's any way it can be good, It can only be good in the utopian world where a government maintains a check on its monetary cap. But a government printing its own money is not without precedent of both failures and successes. I think what's important, though, is to understand it doesn't really matter how Hungary manages its finance. Whether it decides, you know what we're going to do? We're going to go to a commodity basket-backed exchange so that we're going to say there can only be you know, so many forints based on the value of the nation as a whole, or we're going to do it with gold and silver reserves, or we're going to do it with our own you know, uh, fiat system or our own uh, bond-based system, a, a debt-backed system that is based on them issuing debt that's bought by other nations um, and choosing who they sell that to. Uh, what's more likely is that they'll kind of go a little bit rogue and start forming international relationships with nations like Brazil and creating direct exchange uh, ratios. And see, the second that they do that, okay, and this is what people that just want to wrap their head up in the gold beauty platform and think if everything was gold, everything would be great, don't get. The second another nation will take their currency as long as they're responsible about how they manage it, and just because we can't be, don't think no one else can be, it has value and it has solidity. And they can dissolve a lot of their debts to the EU, just like they did the IMF. And once they've done that, then it's up to them to remain responsible. Now, what is the history of nations that do this? They have abundant prosperity. They become reckless. They lose the discipline necessary to manage a currency system this way. They overprint money, completely devalue it, undo all the good that's done, and end up back into a tyranny. And, 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 and you know, a series of cycles throughout a nation's history. It's done over and over and over again. Doesn't mean it won't work or that it won't work initially. Now, I have some thoughts on how we need more and more people building their own currencies like AOCS does, Mulligan Mitt helps people do and different ways in which that can be done. Like, it's great that we have something called a Bitcoin. I think it's wonderful, but I think that the, the issue with Bitcoin is it's so big. It's got crosshairs on it from everywhere. If there were hundreds of small competing currencies that all had their own basic Forex or foreign exchange, right? So if, if, if society eventually decides, you know what, we're just going to do this without you, and all of these currencies could float against each other, 
and all of them become exchangeable, well, then the only problem there is the exchange gets the target on it. But what if there were multiple exchanges? I mean, Bitcoin already has multiple exchanges. What if there were multiple currency exchanges that said, well, you know, 100 space buck units of AOCS currency, because the, the number value of 50 per ounce doesn't really correlate to a dollar at all, but would just like, well, it coordinates to X number of Ithaca hours which Ithaca hours aren't a great currency, but it's one I know of, so I'm using it as an example, which correlates to X number of Bitcoins, which come you know, to Y number of whatever, out, just plain ounces of silver, to Z number of you know, Joe's ammo bucks. There's a potential here to start to decouple at not just national levels, but private levels. That's what AOCS has been working on so hard over the years. And... That's, they have one way to do it, by doing it with silver and gold and copper. Doesn't mean there's not other ways to do it. There's a truth that most people don't understand money. If you don't really understand money, I, I really recommend you read my book, The Real Truth About Money. And I, I, I hope that you'll do so uh, with re, you know, regarding remarks that I made recently about it with an understanding that when I lay out how a nation could run a true fiat currency, it's actually not. The way I lay it out in the book, it actually would be a commodity-backed currency. Um, and th the commodity backing would put the cap on it. I'm not saying that's what we should do. I'm saying that's one way it could be done. And I think that what got, really got missed, and I need to update this book, and I just need to make my, like, I need to sit down for like a weekend and pound it out. And when it's like 100 degrees outside, you know, I'd rather be in the pool, honestly. I'd just be honest with you. This time of year, you know, since I can't take my laptop and sit out in the porch and do this without like, my face raining sweat down onto the keyboard. I'd rather sit in the pool and drink beer when I do get some time to myself than, than write a book. But I need to make myself do this. Because what that book needs is a couple other examples. Like, here's how I would do it with silver and gold. Here's how I would do a trimetallic standard. He, and I, what I should do is an analysis of how Bitcoin works and why it works and how other currencies could be built off of the same model. Because what it is is a cap and fractionalize. Where most current, because Bitcoin's a fiat currency, guys. It is. Bitcoin is, they just created them. Now, they created a system where people could mine them, but it was a virtual mining process. But from the day it was started, they said there will only ever be whatever number of Bitcoins there are. And once they're all mined, there are no more. And then if there's not enough units to meet the market's demand, we can fractionalize and take smaller and smaller pieces of one coin. So the currency, instead of becoming weaker over time, is designed to become stronger over time. So... The reason I need to add those things, and I need to add like a ch like a chapter before I get into how currencies can be created, that like says like 87 times, so it'll go through some people's thick skulls. I'm not saying that any of these things are what they're supposed they should do. These are all mental exercises to understand why money works, because this is the truth. Money works because of an agreement, and that is in the book. An agreement is what makes money work. As long as you and I agree to exchange Federal Reserve notes, it's real money. It's as real as any other money. And if you don't believe that, then why does the bank take it for the mortgage on your house? Why can you go down to the store and buy stuff with it? Why can why will your neighbor take it in exchange for the motorcycle that he decided he's too old to be driving around on anymore and you want to buy it because you're having your own midlife crisis now? Because it's real. Because we agree that it is so. And that is key to understanding money. Now... What I want to take you back to, though, is the form of money that we have today and where it came from and what was said 
at the time that that money was being figured out. Like, this is how we're going to do this going forward. Uh, this is in a, a video called The Zeitgeist Addendum, and it's not a, the, the, the Zeitgeist movie and the Zeitgeist Addendum. If you fact check a few things, you'll find some errors. I'm not going to say it's 100% accurate, but it brings up a lot of interesting things, especially on monetary creation. I'll warn you, if you're going to look up Zeitgeist and the Zeitgeist Addendum, especially the first one, Zeitgeist, uh, which is spelled Z-E-I-T-G-I-E-S-T, and you are a religious person, you are going to be angry for the first 30 minutes. If it really angers you, don't watch that part. Or don't watch it at all. I'm just telling you, you're not going to like it. I would say if you are a Christian, you're really not going to like it. I'm not saying that that part of that video is important. I'm just telling you, because I know some of you are going to go look it up. You're going to email me, did you know that? Yes, I know. Okay. Everybody is entitled to an opinion. You're entitled to your opinion of their opinion, but you're not entitled to say that they shouldn't have their opinion. Right. So just... Let that be. I just want to be clear about that. But this quote appears to check out. And this was just sent to me by uh, Shannon. And it appears that it checks out absolutely uh, factual. And here's what it is. This is uh, a British versus U.S. model for slavery that I've talked about before. Slavery is likely to be abolished by the war power and chattel slavery and all chattel slavery abolished. This I and my European friends are in favor of, for slavery is but the owning of labor and carries with it the care of laborers. While the European plan, led by England, is that capital shall control labor by controlling wages. The great debt that the capitalists will see to it is made out of war must be used as a means to control the volume of money. To accomplish this, the bonds must be used as a banking basis. We are now waiting for the Secretary of Treasury to make this recommendation to Congress. It will, it will not do to allow the greenback, as it is called, to circulate as money any length of time. We cannot control that, but we can control the bonds and through them the bank issues. So, what is this basically saying? That we need our currencies. This is, this is the financial elite. This comes from the Hazard Circular, July 1862. Okay? Um, And so this is right as the war between the states in America is about to begin. And, and you know, actually it's already begun. And things don't look that great in 1862 for the North, do they? But what what you hear here is Europe, Europe knows the, the way the war will go. Europe has already decided that the, the North is going to win the war. In fact, in, in some instances, if you go deeper into it, you find that Europe was like, well, if the North doesn't look like they're going to win at some point. We might just have to make sure that they win. There were some European powers that were friendly to the Confederacy, but more for monetary gain than they were for actually caring if they won or not. Uh, and certainly people like the English were interested in seeing the North win this war because the tentacles of the international banking cartel were already woven together uh, between the United States and, the, and Great Britain by the time of the Civil War. So one way or another, the, the South was going to lose, is what this is saying. And But this, this idea that the North has, that they can just control their own money, we got to get rid of that. And this was meant to appease the people that were pro-slavery. Pro they couldn't understand the financial elite, not the plantation owner, but the owner of plantations, right, through banking, that it's all going to be okay. What they were saying is, when you make a man your slave, put him in chains and say, go pick cotton or whatever you make him do, you own his labor. 
Instead of paying for his labor, you own his labor. But you own obligations like to make sure you feed him and clothe him and put a roof over his head. And you can say, well, if I treat him like animals, I don't have to worry. Well, yeah, you do, because if they all die, you don't have any more slaves, right? Again, if anybody thinks I'm saying this is okay, you're nuts. I'm just saying this was the mentality at the time. So just like I right now have a fan blowing on some of my chickens so they won't die in the heat, you had to take care of these people because if they die, you don't have them anymore. And if we move into this financial solution that involves running the currency through debt mechanisms, bonds, and banking, we can control labor, and a person has to put a roof over their own head, and they'll pay us to do it. The person has to feed themselves, and they'll pay us for the privilege of doing it. person, anything that they want as a recreational thing, they'll have to provide for themselves, and they'll pay us to do it. And they'll elect the people we tell them to elect. And we will control them with money. And we will control them internationally through banking. And whenever we don't like something, we'll just change the flow of capital to get what we want. That's exactly where we're at today. This is 1862. This quote checks out. Um, I can tell you that the people that, were, that are the elite financial people, the people that are the wealthiest families in the world, were a lot less closed-vested at the time. They were so arrogant that things like this went out publicly. Many proclamations, like a proclamation that was part of the crime of 1872, where silver was demonetized, went out to the banks and just says, basically, at this point, call in your loans and, and create a crisis. And it was public. And they didn't get, they were like, I don't give a shit if anybody knows we're doing it. We'll just do whatever we want. In this day and age where people are more educated, have access to the Internet... They are a lot more covert about the way they're doing some things. But a lot of it's still very overt because they know the average person doesn't understand it and doesn't care as long as they can get buy the newest iPod. If they can buy the newest iPhone or the newest Android phone, they're happy. And they think they have a choice because I chose Android, I chose Apple, whatever. They don't care because even if you paid cash for it, your cash is a dead instrument. And they can control success and failure with cash. Because the nation, our nation, doesn't control its currency. There's no one at the Federal Reserve directly accountable to the people. There's a chairman appointed by the president. Chairman is a mouthpiece. Bernanke is a mouthpiece. The, 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 the bankers themselves decide what the Fed is going to do, and they tell the Fed what to do, and the Fed does it. And there ain't nothing you can do about it. That's why I think we need to invest in our own ways of creating value in our own communities. And some people may not agree with me, but to me, this is a form of anarchism. If you decide I'm going to create value and I'm going to exchange value with another person and I'm just going to ignore the establishment's definition of what must be exchanged for value, then to me, that is anarchistic. Anarchist? Anarchist in nature. Uh, here's what I mean. It's, it's, it's us saying we'll do what nations like China and Australia are doing. So right now, in international trade, everybody's supposed to use the dollar. So the Chinese have the renminbi, the Australians have the Australian dollar. Let's say the Australians are buying something from the Chinese. Australian dollars are supposed to be converted to U.S. dollars. The transaction's done in U.S. dollars. That goes to China. China converts it back to the renminbi, sends Australia their stuff, and then everything's good to go. So we get to be the middleman. And that's part of why we have global economic dominance, because of that thing. Well, Australia and China recently said, we're not going to do that anymore. You have to. No, we don't. Just not going to. What are you gonna do? Go to war with China? Gonna go with Australia? Go to war with Australia over this? No, we're just not gonna do it anymore. 
So that is an act of sovereignty for Australia and China. I don't care whether you like those nations or not. It doesn't matter. I don't care if you agree with their governments or not. It doesn't matter. It is an assertion of sovereignty. We will not use your means of exchange. We have our own value we'll exchange, and we'll determine our own fair value exchange. So when you here in America decide, I've had enough of your crap, and you know what? We're going to do business with each other in old silver dimes or new paradigms, or we're going to create a community currency. A community currency script that's, that's, you can go to certain professionals in our community and get certain services done in hours, the way Ithaca Hours works. And a lot of times they'll never even be cashed in. They're just backed with that, that, that guarantee of labor on demand. And you start exchanging that, you've done the same thing. You said we'll voluntarily associate our value with others that voluntarily want to associate with their value and free exchange. And I think that is very encouraging, and it's something we need to see more of. Um, and it's a big part of why I work with Rob. Not because I believe that everything like that should be based on minted silver, gold, and copper. Uh, but I just think that's one real soft entry point, because people see the value in it, especially silver. You know, if, if you ask somebody, will you take silver for that? As long as they can take that silver and put it away, because they don't need cash right now, or they can use that silver to barter for something else, they'll do it. The businesses that do it the most are service-oriented businesses because they don't have a part. Like so, And a lot of times they'll do it as a hybrid. You go to a mechanic and say, well, I need my car fixed. And he goes, you need a new starter. And you go, well, what's that going to cost? He goes, well, a rebuild starter is 110 bucks and it's $100 worth of labor. And you go, well, you take silver. A lot of times they'll say, can't do it on a starter and wait for you to make the connection. And you go, will you take it on the labor? Yeah, I'll take it on the labor. I'll take, you know, X ounces for the labor and, and, and cash for the starter. Well, now it's a hybrid anarchistic uh, economic model. You've circumvented some of U.S. currency exchange. And the IRS says we still want to tax that, and you're supposed to pay taxes on it. And as uh, your advisor, I have to tell you, you have to pay taxes on everything. I'm just saying, like, how do they know if Joe the plumber puts in some pipes for Tim the, the, uh, Tim the tool man? And take some silver dimes for it. Or Tim the Toolman gives him an old circular saw that the plumber never really had one because he didn't really need one, but then he realized he could use one. I don't know. How do they track that? They don't. That's how. And if you have a thousand little communities start to do this, things change. The community is what I want to move into next. Uh, but this really lets the whole financial aspect I've been talking about up till now go. So on the whole community thing, I, I've long believed that it's 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 time to start doing things differently and to start creating value in different ways for people and creating voluntary associations based on real value uh, that sometimes is indeed monetary. And that's what I want to talk about. Before I do, I want to give you an update on what happened with MT Knives. So there's a few people upset by what happened. And I, I you know, if you're upset, you're just stop having sour grapes, man, because if everything went off without a hitch, there's no guarantee that you might not have also not gotten a knife because there were over 450 people uh, that registered uh, that wanted to be one of the 100 stakeholders in MT Knives. And there wasn't really 100 because I had one, so 99. Okay, so Patrick had this thing all ready to go. We had no idea how intense... Um, the response would be. It was unbelievable, and we got to see a few minutes later why it was happening. Uh, a couple hundred people on a website usually isn't that big a deal, even with a shared service uh, provider uh, like Patrick was using. But about 
30 minutes before the launch of the stakeholder program, his server started to have problems and throw off server errors. By the time it was time to actually go ahead and, and let people buy a stakeholder knife and stakeholder position, it was shut down. And what happened was, because everybody was excited, everybody kept hitting refresh, 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 which compounded the program problem. So the solution we came up with, Patrick emailed his list and said, we're going to send out another email in about five minutes. It's going to have a direct buy link on PayPal, and you can go buy your position there. And everybody understood the program. I'll explain the basics of it in just a second and why I'm even talking about it as I go into this community concept that I have in my head. And... uh So we did that. I put it out on the Facebook and, and the blog, trying to be as equitable as we could with it, because we promised a launch at that time. So we're going to give you one. So about 15 minutes late, the launch goes live, and Patrick sends out an email. And it's first come, first serve, just like we promised. Six minutes. Six minutes, almost $60,000 worth of sales, $10,000 a minute. And sell out. Now, why did that program sell out? Because I mentioned it, that had something to do with it, but it was what we created. We created a new type of value. You go in and you do a Kickstarter, you buy somebody's thing, you help them get it off the ground and you get whatever that thing is. There's no guarantee they're not going to turn around and sell that thing for half of what you paid for it. They probably will. You've helped them. That's the whole point. It's totally acceptable that they turn around and say, you know what, now that we've got this thing up to speed, we've got our, our scale going, we, our economy of scale going, we can sell it for like 20% less. And they do that. And most people do a Kickstarter. They don't get upset about it. If you do, you need to check yourself because you don't get it. All right? But Kickstarter takes a piece. And Kickstarter says you have to sell through us for 30 days after this is done. And we want a piece of that too. Well, what I set up with Patrick was give me a knife. Give me knife number one. And everybody else can buy. And I get what they get. That was value for value. But the value was you buy that knife. You have knife number 12. The next time he does a limited edition knife, you can buy knife 12, keep it. You can buy knife 12 and, and auction it on eBay, but you're going to pay the wholesale price. Or you can say, I'm not going to buy it. I want you to sell it at retail, and you get the difference. No one's ever done anything like that before. People climbed over themselves to get in on it because it's a real example of value-for-value value exchange. I need to take this full time. Here's what I'm willing to do for 100 people that will help me get there. Very unique, innovative program. It worked. I want you to keep that in mind as I describe what I'm about to describe. This came from me when Xavier came on the show about his eco-village, which is like 10 or 15 or 20 acres or something like that, what he's doing there, and how nobody that lives at the eco-village actually owns the land. They might own the house, but they have a lease on the land. Maybe it's a 99-year guaranteed renewable and sellable lease. But the landowner maintains control over the direction of the community and says, Yeah, you can't do that. Or more likely, you can't stop somebody else from doing that. Especially with a prepper community, it would probably even be more lenient than what he set up there. It's a benevolent dictatorship model. And when I, ever I've considered this, I've always wanted to do this, and my initial idea was either to find somebody that had the land already and do owner financing on it, or, or what have you, and sell off you know, like an acre to each person and put 50 acres aside and do maybe 150 acres and... You own your own piece of land, and then there's this community property that's co-managed and things like that. And it, it it wasn't bad, but it had some concerns and some problems, and could you get buy-in? So I'd like to talk to you today about how a model like this would work. I know that many of you would never move to Texas, which is probably where we would do this, um, but it could be done elsewhere. And I want to talk specifically to people that say, I would never lease land because I'll never own it. And I want you to just... 
Because, again, we're talking about things like monetary creation um, and, and things where people don't really understand the underlying workings and the mind closes. And then not only do you write off something that might be very good, but you don't get it inside of you where you can digest it and possibly improve it or completely change it to something totally different by using it as a building block. So even if you think there's no way you would ever be open to this concept today, I want you to listen to the way that I'm thinking now. And I'm going to ask Xavier to tell me what he's doing and how close we are and how we manage this legally and all. But I'm going to be looking for some investors to do this next year. I, I think this is a, a good idea, and I want to do it. And I think I can find at least 100 people that would come in as a leasee on an acre. And I think I can do this with 150 to 200 acres of land and build incredible value for everybody. So this is how it would work. So I would need a certain number of investors because I don't have the capital to go out and acquire the land. And because I'm leasing the land, I don't want to finance it. Because if I'm financing it and then leasing it to you, somebody else can actually pull strings. So I want full ownership in the group of investors with no tie to a bank so that every individual that takes part in this knows that their lease is safe, if that makes sense. So we would, we would purchase the land. We would write a plan that gives the investors their money back in 60 months based on full occupancy. So in other words, we'll take enough out of the, of the monthly lease to pay ourselves back our full investment in five years. And I'm not sure how those numbers work out yet, but what that means is if in the first year we only had 30% occupancy, it's going to take longer than 60 months because we're going to base it on 100% occupancy, how much of the money in we take out. So there's money left. The property would be owned by the investors through a corporation that would actually hold the property, a property holding corporation. The money this above what's necessary to pay back the investors' initial investment stays in the corporation and is used to improve the property to do things like put in great big giant lakes and ponds and food forests and community buildings and canning centers. And put in something if we have to buy it remote enough so that it's a business and it's running as a business with a business line of credit. And we can tell AT&T, we'd like a bonded T1 here, please. So we can provide Wi-Fi access to the entire property. Okay? You start to see that, that reinvestment. At 60 months, when the investors have recouped their initial investment, the ratio switches and gets even better to the community side. The ratio then becomes something, and none of these numbers are in stone, but I'm thinking an 80-20 split, 80% remaining in the corporation, 20% paid out to the investor as a dividend. Why do the investors get a dividend? They bought the property initially to provide that. Okay, But here's where it gets golden. As that money goes back into the, the, the community, the members of the community would then say, this is what we want to do with it. And the investors, again, as the property owners, would make the final decision with guidance from, let's say, a board, a council. Well, what if somebody says this? I, if you're going to ask me that, the answer is don't come here. Okay, If you can't trust other people in a group like this where everything's spelled out in a lease agreement right from the beginning and you know exactly what you're getting going to, well, what if he doesn't pick enough apples? doesn't matter because you don't get to come. <laughs> All right? Seriously, right? So that money then gets used for improvements. Now, 
The way this would be built in my mind is if you set aside 100 acres for people to have their least, acre, their least acre where they could build a house, they could put in an underground house, they could put in a wafati, they could camp there, they could tow in an RV, they could do whatever the hell they want to do. It's their piece. They lease it, yes, but it's their piece. That goes sorted to the back from the main access. The community property goes out to the front and creates a buffer between the resident or the temporary resident and the community property in which you have schools and educational programs that people come to. Now, I'm doing a workshop in October. I can take 25 people. I have 60 begging to come, and not everybody's going to get to come. What does that mean? With the power of TSP marketing, marketing things like this in workshops, we can do five or six bigger ones every year and produce revenue just from education. That revenue can actually go toward the construction of some of the infrastructure. And eventually, a leaseholder might have a $200 a month lease payment, but might have a revenue share back of $200 for that month and owe nothing. Or they might have a revenue share back because we're going to take that revenue and based on what the infrastructure needs, create a dividend pool that pays back to the leaseholder on the profit on the property. So in time... Your lease might be, we owe you $100. I can't promise that, but we would format the finances to work that way. Now, somebody buys an acre, or purchases a lease for an acre on a 99-year lease. What do they have to do to get that piece of the revenue share? Absolutely nothing. They don't have to do shit. They don't even have to show up. Okay? They don't. What do they have to do? When the fall apple harvest comes in, if they want their share of the apples, absolutely nothing. Show up and pick it up. But, but what if nobody wants to work? It doesn't matter because what we'll have is a, is a system where if you want to go out and graze, you can graze, take what you want, what have you. But when it comes to an organized harvest, and you're talking about an abundance where if you're worried about the fact that Joe ate five figs yesterday, again, you don't get to come. It doesn't matter. Okay? Just You don't get to come. That people that show up to do harvest work will be paid for it. Out of the revenue flow from the property. Those might be residents and it might come off their lease for the month. They might make a profit that month. It might be some random person you hire off the street and say, hey, we need somebody to come in and, and pick pecans this month. It doesn't matter because they're compensated for it. You have an ownership stake in the activity by having a lease share in the property. But the property owner gets to control the property. Will your lease ever go up? Yes. The lease will take into account property taxes. And if the property taxes go up on the entire farm, so to speak, or village, so to speak, it will be prorated against the leaseholders that are there. Oh, I don't like that. Don't come. I'm serious. I mean, because the value that you're talking about here now... You have to think about this. I believe, I really believe that we can build something like this and I can get enough investors together to buy 200 acres. I think that's an ideal number. And I believe that that only takes 100 acres into the hands of leaseholders. That leaves 100 acres of community property. Of that, I see 20 of it in ponds. Fish. How do you get fish? Go fish. Okay. What if somebody takes too many fish? We'll set limits if we have, we'll manage the biodiversity of the pond. Relax. Okay? I also want this to be on maybe the, the, the Brazos or Trinity River. Now you've got more fish. You've also got hogs. 
You've got all, if you've got access to a river, you have access to a public thoroughfare up and down through there for trade and barter in a bad time, right? But for just general use in a good time. What the leaseholder initially would need to understand is how would this compare to if you were to go out and say, well, I'm just going to buy an acre. You know, you can go out and buy 10 acres for about 40 grand, but one acre is going to cost you almost 40 grand with nothing, with, with no real infrastructure. When somebody came in on this early, there'd be very little. There wouldn't be a lot there yet, but this plan would be in place. And if you believe in the plan, you want to be part of the plan, we make you part of the plan. As the property's infrastructure is increased, what's the value of your lease? Let's say we did a lease for this. It's a $1,000 purchase on the lease and $200 a month. I don't know if that's going to be it. Let me just say $1,200. Where do you get into a piece of property like this for $1,200 and $200 a month? And the answer is you don't. The answer is you don't, unless you do it this way. Now, let's say you've got that going on. It's, it's, you, you put your $1,200 in, you're paying your $200. Five years from now, we have a food forest, we have ponds, we have lakes, we have the, and you decide, I don't want to be here anymore. Think anybody might be interested in purchasing your lease and then taking over your lease payment. And what do you sell your lease for? Whatever anybody will pay for it. Who keeps that money? You do. It's your lease. I think... The opportunity, and I have to refine this. And I've been through about a hundred radiations of this. And I've always been stuck on a model that involved the people purchase the property, it's your property, and you do whatever you want. When Xavier presented the lease model to me, I had the initial response most of you do. Why the hell would I do that? And then he pointed out to me how many people are doing that. And that said, well, why are they doing that? And then I examined it and went, because it makes sense. Because it makes complete sense. And you start to be, realize you can be selective with who you take. You don't just have to take everybody that shows up. So one thing I'd be looking for is someone that's an experienced heavy equipment operator. And if you own some heavy equipment, then we're really in business. So now you have a guy sitting out there with a 25-ton track hoe, right, excavator, and maybe a dozer. And you say, well, I want to build my house this month. Well, is he putting a pond in for the community? No. Hey, Tom, can you go over there and, and flatten this spot out for this guy? You know? Now, is that free? I don't know. Maybe he gets paid for his work out of the revenue stream, so kind of, yeah. Well, what if somebody wants a ton of work done? We'll work it out. You put a cap on it monthly. I mean, see, and this is the problem. Everybody sees the problem instead of the solution. And, and, and honest to God, if I'm going to do this, I don't want problem seers. I want solution seers. And I want you to think about what it would be like to have something like that. Do you think of a big, huge building, community building? Inside there are 10 commercial-grade gas stoves. You want to can your own stuff out of your own garden, go down there and do it. But the whole community just went and they need to can something that's just been harvested. Boom. You hire a farm manager to manage the farm who runs a pastured chicken operation. He's paid to do the job, and the chickens are distributed to the property owners. These are the things that can be done. How will it all work out? You don't know until you put a spade in the ground and figure out what you're doing, and it will evolve over time. But what you can do is build a community where every person of that community, by putting up the value in the front end, has a value out of the community for the long term. What about the person who never shows up and just takes? They showed up, they bought their lease, they pay their lease payment, 
And any labor that needs to be done that, that is designed to actually create a surplus distribution is paid for with their money, just like it's paid for with your money. Well, what if I show up and work for free? That's your choice. What if I don't want to work for free? Then maybe you'll get paid. It depends. Do we need you or not? This is free market, free market community, a, an absolute free market community, voluntary association. And if you could make the community profitable enough, the lease payment goes away. The lease payment goes away or, you know, gets cut in half. Tell me you wouldn't be happy with an acre in a place like this if it cost you a hundred bucks a month for it. You'd pay, what we're talking about is somebody else paying your property taxes for you. But I want to own it. You do own it. You own the rights to the property. You have a piece of paper called a lease. That lease spells out very specific things as to what rights you have to that property. And I can't breach that contract because it's a contract. There's another piece of paper that does that. It's called a title to the property. I hold the title. You hold the lease. We have an agreement, an unbreakable agreement. I think there's, I think there's legs with this. So I'm looking for two things now. People that would be interested in buying into something like that. And I'm thinking, again, we've got to run numbers. We've got to find the property. But just gauging interest, $1,200 in the door, $200 a month. Investors that are willing to put up at least $25,000 as an investor. At least $25,000 and no mortgages against the property. If you're going to finance the money somehow and pull it out of something else, that's your business. But the debt cannot be – the property must be debt-free. The day we open the door, so to speak, and say, people, this is your place, right? Here is your acre. Here's where this is going. Here's where that is going. This is the grand design of the community. The day that happens, we have to have title to the land so that we can issue a guaranteed lease. And we have to agree to not ever put the property into debt. We have to make that commitment to the leaseholder, the shareholder in the property. We will never put the property into leverage debt. I think it has wings. Love to hear from some of you guys that would be interested in participating on it. Um, let's move to some more conventional questions for a Monday show at this point. So uh, this is an interesting question, um, and I have a mixed feeling on my answer. Hey, Jack, uh, this is Matthew. I've been offered an amazing deal on land from my father. Only problem is it's in New York. Should I go for it or not? The details are I'm currently stationed at the Air Force in, uh, in Arkansas. Uh, and uh, I plan on leaving the military next July. Uh, we, my wife, son, and I don't have a completely solid plan for our transit out of the military yet. Thanks to you, we've paid off our debt. Hoorah. Uh, would be able to purchase the land in cash. The only problem is it's in New York. And given the recent stupidity of their government, is it still a good move? Let me know if you need more details. Thank you for all you do. Sincerely, Matthew. Uh, Matthew, I have a couple feelings about that. One, in spite of the fact that I am the force behind walking to freedom, and I am encouraging people to leave places like New York, Illinois, and California, because I believe they are not good stewards of your money, and they are causing you to live in oppression, if you look at everything and go, actually, I want to live there still, I want you to live there. Now, I don't think you do, but I just want to be clear about that. People that say, well, I love New York exactly the way it is, please stay there and go down with your ship. Please, okay? Um, that said... If this land is in upstate New York, okay, you're subject to their stupidity, but when things fall apart, that's not necessarily going to be a bad place to be. It really isn't, because as soon as society starts to break apart, you're going to have that divide of rural and urban, and, and 
people in an urban situation are going to behave one way, and people in a rural situation are going to behave completely different. And as far as the rules that the people in, in Albany set for you, now you have to follow them if that ever happens. And there's a, you know, the reason I bring it up, there's a big concern among the audience that that will happen. I have a big concern that it certainly could happen. And so we need to examine that. So, you know, the question then becomes, well, what happens in a place like upstate New York when that falls apart? And the answer is people up there don't forget who they are. They garden, they, they raise livestock, they do what they've always done, and they do more of it. And they hold it together. And they may very well say, this is northern New York now, goodbye. And they might not, I don't know. But it's a concern, and I think that part of the concern gets mitigated. It's, how are you going to have to live now? If you get this great piece of land and you go out there and you decide you want to, you know, start up a, a small livestock operation, are you going to be able to? Are you going to be able to afford to? Is it really a good deal? What are the property taxes on this land going to be after you purchase it, not before? Okay? Is it really a good deal? I know you think it is because your dad offered it to you, and it might be based on current prices of property in New York. <coughs> But let's say you shop for land in Tennessee. Might you find a same similar type of property for less money, and Tennessee has no state income tax? And many of the stupid rules and regulations that they have in New York, they don't have. Kentucky, I could say almost the same thing for. They do have a, a state income tax, but uh, it's pretty low. Um, you know, Carolinas, Western Carolinas are kind of nice. Property's a lot more affordable than New York. Taxes are a lot more affordable than New York. Florida uh, has some amazing places. If I was going to live anywhere other than Texas, it would probably be Florida uh, on the Gulf side. Um, and, you know, as long as you're a half hour off the coast, there's a lot of rural property there. Um, Georgia, especially the northwestern corner, good, good, you know, it's not a great government, but a better government than New York by a long shot. So I'm just saying there's a lot of other options, and I think before you decide that this is a good value on the property purchase price, you should evaluate how does it compare with other places you might rather live. Um You know, a place with a similar climate that's a lot better would be New Hampshire, and it's probably a good deal compared to New Hampshire since you've got a you know a, a, a family member making you a deal, and it's a good deal for New York. New Hampshire property is pretty expensive as well. So the thing that, that would attract me to New York is the climate. New York State has a – it's like a lot like Pennsylvania where I grew up. It has a wonderful growing climate, true four seasons. There's a lot you can do there. Uh, in a lot of ways, a lot of things that you would do there are easier than doing them here um, until we figure out how to really innovate this stuff down here, and we're, we're starting to swing that. Um, so you got to make this as a personal choice, Matthew, but those are the things I would think about. My bigger picture for you would be where do you see yourself in 15 years, and does New York jive with that? In other words, we know that even if everything stays together, you know, society basically holds together, we get some kind of a, instead of a radical financial reset on the debt, we get a, 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 a moderate financial reset, and the country kind of holds together, and that certainly could happen. Uh, it'll be catastrophic, but let's say not you know, abruptly, utterly, totally catastrophic, and, and things kind of stay on the course that they're on mostly, and you're in New York, what does the oppressive nature of the state of New York look like in 15 years, and are you willing to tolerate that? If you're going to put roots down on this move, you have to think out at least 15 years, not just today. Um, and then one other side of this. 
I'm encouraged by people in the state of New York and the state of Colorado who are fighting the shit out of these new stupid firearms regulations. And if they're ever going to be reclaimed, you need good people there to do it. The reason I'm encouraging people to walk is I think it's too late. I think the number of ass clowns in places like Albany and Denver and New York City so vastly outweighs the people with common sense in those states that, that the tipping point's been reached and you're never bringing it back. But I would cheer you on if you wanted to fight to fight to do so. And I would, I would, I would cheer for your victory if you achieved it. And I would say something along the lines of, I've never been so happy to be proven wrong. So if you want to fight that fight, go for it. I just think, personally for me, there's easier ways to do this. And let me tell you, if you got family up there, there'll never be a time easier to choose to live somewhere else than now. If you go there now, you'll find the main thing that keeps people from leaving with walking to freedom, the main thing people say, man, I want to go so bad, but my wife, my husband, my sister, whatever, doesn't want us to leave, and I can't. And, man, I understand that. Uh, having good family around, I can't tell you how, how blessed I feel to have my wife's family around me. We don't all see eye to eye, but they're good people. And compared to most of the members of, of my family that I left behind in Pennsylvania, um, man, It's, it's an incredible, you know, there's things I've had to learn and reteach myself to be a good member of the family, like birthdays are important. You know, people like to get calls on their birthday saying happy birthday. I mean, it's, <laughs> uh, so when you have good, real good family that gets along and, and, and does stuff together, I understand how hard it is to leave, but it'd be easier to go from, uh, from an Air Force base in Arkansas to Tennessee than it will ever be to change your mind about New York once you've got there. You just have to consider these things and make a personal choice. I can't tell you any of them are either right or wrong. Um, next thing I wanted to talk about is a little article that came out in Smithsonian.com about honey uh, and its eternal shelf life. I said eternal. Let me read this to you. Modern archaeologists excavating ancient Egyptian tombs have found something unexpected. Amongst the tomb's artifacts are pots of honey thousands of years old and yet still preserved. Through millennia, the archaeologists discover the food remained unspoiled, an unmistakable testament to the internal shelf life of honey. There are a few other examples of foods that keep indefinitely in their raw state. Salt, sugar, dried rice are a few, but there's something about honey. It can remain preserved in completely edible form. While you wouldn't want to chow down on raw rice straight or salt straight, uh, one could ostensibly dip into a thousand-year-old jar of honey and enjoy it without preparation, as if it were a day old. Moreover, honey's longevity lends it to other properties, mainly medicinal, that other resilient foods don't have, which raises the question, what exactly makes honey such a special food? The answer is, as complex as honey's flavor, you don't get a food source with no expiration date without a whole slew of factors working in perfect harmony. The first comes from the chemical makeup of honey itself. Honey is first and foremost a sugar. Sugars are hygroscopic, a term that means contain very little water in their natural state, but can readily suck in moisture if less unsealed. As Armina Harris, executive director of the Honey and Pollination Center of the Robert Mondavi Institute of University of California, Davis explains, honey in its natural form is very low moisture. Very few bacteria or other microorganisms can survive in an environment like that. They just die. They're smothered by it, essentially. What Harris points out represents an important feature in honey's longevity. For honey to spoil, there needs to be something inside of it that can spoil. 
With such an inhospitable environment, organisms can't survive long enough within the jar of honey to have a chance to spoil it. Honey is also naturally extremely acidic. It has a pH that falls between 3 and 4.5. Approximately that acid will... Uh, approximately. That acid will kill off almost anything that wants to grow there, Harris explains. So bacteria and spoil-ready organisms must look elsewhere for a home. The life expectancy inside of a jar of honey is just too low. And it goes on. You can read the rest of it. But I don't know. It has me excited that we're going to be putting in some beehives soon. We won't be putting bees in until the spring, but we're going to put in some top bar hives. That actually reminds me, I need to get in touch with that dude down in Waco about getting up here and doing those hives with uh, my intern, Josiah. Um, Every time I hear about honey, I'm like, why aren't you already doing this, Jack? And I want to encourage you guys. We had like eight different beekeepers come on, and all of them presented different ways, you know, warre hives, uh, conventional hives, Landstrom hives, uh, top bar, and I've decided on top bar. And I don't think there's a wrong answer there, though. I think there's a lot of uh, advantages to all. But, man, if we could just get people keeping bees in larger numbers, I think we could do a lot to turn the tide. We keep hearing about how, how much about how the bees are in trouble, the bees are in trouble, and how modern agriculture is responsible for it. And they are. But if you – we can solve the problem in numbers by just continuing to develop hives. And this is a great reason for it. And if, there, if you need another reason – to keep bees and produce honey, let me just say one word to you, mead. If I have to explain that, go Google it, M-E-A-T, mead. Um, and uh, there's just so much opportunity out there for more uh, self-reliance and self-sufficiency. And I'm telling you, that community I was talking about, there'd be bees there, lots of them. I'm going to have at least two, I'm thinking about just going straight to three hives here. Um, and the amount of honey you can produce out of three hives is, is a lot, And there's demand for it. And the, 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 the fact that the way you store it is by putting it in a jar and closing the lid is just an awesome survival food. Now, do I suggest you live on honey? No. But the point is you could survive a long time with it as part of your diet. Um, I love it in tea. Um, as paleo as I am, and honey is a high in sugar thing, and it's like a moderate on paleo, I don't see much of a problem with using it as a sweetener in tea. Uh, sometimes I'll use like a teaspoon of honey uh, to a big jar of tea this is and and then a little stevia to bring the sweetness up because the honey will only give you so much sweetness but the goodness of the honey's in there um, it's just amazing stuff guys and again let me just read the very part uh, beginning part again uh, modern archaeologists excavating in ancient Egyptian tubes have often found something unexpected among their tombs pots of honey thousands of years old that are still preserved man if you need more incentive than that to get on the honey bandwagon I don't know what it is. So uh, get your hives ready for next year, folks. Next one comes from John in Indiana. And I think I basically explained this on August 2nd, but I think he does a better job, so I'm going to clear it up. What I have to tell you, though, before I do it, for those that may not have heard the 2nd of August show, is that the United States federal public debt has now been static. It means it hasn't gone up or down for over two months. Yeah, close to it. Yeah, no, two months. Let's say two months at this point. We haven't gone into debt further. We haven't gone out of debt. We've just sat there. And we're just a little tiny gnat's hair of the ass below the federal debt ceiling limit, the amount of money that we can borrow. But yet we continue to sell treasuries and things like that. And it doesn't make any sense. And why? And basically what I said is they're robbing Peter to, say, to, to pay Paul. They're taking money from other parts of the government and borrowing it intergovernmentally, right? So it's an intergovernment loan. 
and then if you don't get the debt limit to increase eventually, then you have catastrophic consequences from all the places you took that money and now can't pay it back. John from Indiana explains it perfectly. You covered this on your 2 August 13 show. And you've made references in the show since. The question is, what's going on with the debt ceiling? Why is it pegged at a certain number? And you know you can continue to spend, and you know we're continuing to spend over the limit. This has been referenced in the past as extraordinary measures. You can see references from Tim Geithner and now Jack Lou. The specific clown is irrelevant, but the process is the same. Here it is. This is the part you're, and if you really pay attention to what this means, you're really not going to like what you're about to hear when you realize how close to, to economic catastrophe this puts us. In order not to exceed the limit, the Treasury starts to pilfer other sources. They essentially start to borrow money from various retirement funds. Once Congress increases the debt limit, they'll pay back all the accounts plus interest. So you will see on day one after the debt ceiling increase or at the next Treasury auction, the debt will explode upwards to pay back the past four to five months of spending then start to resume a normal rate of increased debt accumulation based on ongoing spending. If I were to make an analogy to my personal life, it's equivalent to me borrowing from my 401k or retirement fund. Uh, yeah, let me come back to that one in a second. If Congress fails to increase the debt ceiling, the money is gone, the federal retiree savings funds are wiped out. See the post below for specifics and dollar amounts available to various funds. And there's on heritage.org uh, an article I'll link to that you can you can uh, you can read all the details about this. But let's let me go back to that. If I were to make an analogy to my personal life, it's the equivalent of me borrowing from my 401k or retirement fund. Okay, it's so close. Let me put it to you this way: If I were going to say this is how this works, I would say it's like me taking a loan out of your 401 retirement account. And if I can't pay it back, you're the one that loses. So that was almost perfect, John. But your, your analogy is spot on. And thanks for, for adding to that discussion. Basically, I knew that, but I, I couldn't put it in words the way you did that made it as clear to people. So, you know, now that you've done it, now I can. So here's what's happening. This is the Jack Spierko version, the no bullshit 30-second explanation. The Treasury is taking the money that the federal employees have in their retirement accounts and using it for spending, for national spending, until the Congress, okay, raises the debt ceiling so they can issue fake money against it and pay it back. And if the Congress doesn't raise the debt ceiling, there's no money to put it back in the hole And immediately, we start to see federal retirement plans become insolvent. This is the precipice of economic catastrophe. And don't worry, it won't happen because the Congress will have to raise the debt ceiling. Because whoever holds back on it will get slaughtered and the sheeple will demand it. And this is what I said you know, years ago, the last time we had this debate was about two and a half years ago. They'll do it, they have to, and under our current monetary paradigm, you want them to. Because the consequences are oblivion if they do not. But Jack, the consequences are oblivion anyway. Yes, but I'd prefer for oblivion to not come tomorrow. Because I know what's going to happen, and I want time to keep setting up these systems of redundancy. And I know it doesn't have to be oblivion tomorrow, and I'm telling you this, you can want whatever you want. My my dad used to say, want in one hand, shit in the other, and see which one fills up first, right? Well, that's that's what I'm going to tell you here. You can want them not to do it, but the other hand's going to fill up first. 
Uh, I'm not saying it's a good thing or a bad thing. I mean, the right thing is to change the economic paradigm and put the control of the money back into the hands of the people and the nation itself. But that ain't gonna happen either. So the, the you know when you're in the middle of a game of chess and you can either move the knight and sacrifice it and not end up in checkmate or end up in checkmate, you move the knight. The game's in play, and that's where we're at here. And it is a chess game. Oh, it's a chess game, and it, you, you got to understand this: we're all pawns, so we need to be building our own board somewhere else for when this game ends. That's why I'm encouraging you to build self-sufficiency in your own life, to build communities around you, because this, this, if you look at that, that tells you what these people are willing to do to maintain the illusion that duct tapes our economy together. And you look at that and you know it can't go on forever. And you know the next thing they're going to target is your retirement account. But Jack, my retirement account is a 401k and it's not public and they can't have or it's not public so they can't have it. It's a private retirement account. Boy, they are rattling all around those retirement accounts. There's trillions of dollars in there that the little bureaucrats and their pocket protectors can't wait to get their hands on. You guys, I'm not telling you to liquidate right now. I'm telling you, you keep an eye on this one. You watch. They're going to find a way in, and they'll probably start getting people to do it voluntarily, like I've said before. I can't go on that today. We're long on the show already. i got a lot more I want to cover before I wrap up. But don't you believe that your 401k is protected from bureaucrats, because it ain't. Stuff just seems to come in themes, man. It really does. And, and there's a lot of finance stuff today. So let me answer this one for uh, Preston. Preston said, can you explain the world debt clock page from us.debtclock.org site? Um, on a recent podcast, Holy Crap Version 2.0, <laughs> you mentioned the usdebtclock.org site. After sipping down a hefty glass of my recent homemade Eastern peach wine, I, I really recommend anybody have a glass of wine or a little scotch or something before you look at World Debt Clock, especially in the evening. It's depressing otherwise. Um, while watching our Fair Nation's debt count faster than my computer can comprehend, I decided to check out the World Debt Clock link. Every country listed is in the red, and I was wondering how this is possible. Who do they owe, and how can they all simultaneously be in debt? Thanks as usual. Who do they owe? They owe the world banks of the world, and they owe each other, and they owe the banks through each other. You've, you've just hit the nail on the head of why this system is so ridiculous. Okay, if I owe you money, right, it, it doesn't make sense that you owe me money and neither of us has money. We have a situation where I owe you, you owe your friend Fred, Fred owes, owns Tom, Tom owes Tim, Tim owes uh, Timmy, right? Timmy Jr. Timmy Jr. owes, you know, Balky Bartokamus, and Balky Bartokamus owes me. And this is how we manage the, the, the finances of the world? Is that true? Yeah! Of course it is! The way you have to judge a nation's wealth accordingly, then, is go, what are their assets in relation to their debt? What can they put their hands on and say, this is worth a financial instrument of real commodity like gold or silver or oil versus the debt? And can they service the debt? And if you really look at it, it's ridiculous. It is a completely ridiculous thing. I can't go deep into it because, again, I can do a whole show just on how the global financial system works and how everybody does owe everybody else. But it, it works this way. For a nation to create money, 
unless it goes truly sovereign, unless it says we're going to do gold and silver as our currency and we're done, unless they say we're going to do fiat, true fiat, we do, there's no fiat money there right now, guys. It's debt-backed. But see, please, please, fiat would be this. Jack Spirico becomes Jack Spirico, President of the United States of America. And I fire Ben Bernanke and I just lay waste to the whole Federal Reserve and tell him, go screw, you guys ain't getting paid. We're going to pay off the rest of the creditors in the world, but the money we owe you, which is the majority of our debt now, you guys had a monopoly for 113 years, goodbye, you're done, goodbye, go out. But, but, you're gone. Any of them that come back, shoot them. Right? I take over like a dictator. And I say, from now on, the U.S. dollar will be backed by the good faith and credit of the United States of America. And we do have gold reserves, and that will play a part in it. But we're also going to say our timber lands are worth X, our arable farmlands are worth Y, and we're going to cap the monetary supply based on a, a basket currency value of the country. I don't care whether you think we should do this or not. I'm explaining to you how it would, work, how it would be sovereign. And I say, now we're going to print our own dollars based on that. And we take those dollars and we go to Australia and go, here's your money. Japan, here's your money. China, here's your money. Everybody piss off. We're done with this. And we're only going to issue bonds when it is in the good interest of it. Now, is this a fantasy? Sure it is. Right? But at that point, it would be a fiat currency because we're issuing it by our own directive. And it's still not even pure fiat. Pure fiat would be, we'll just issue as much as we think we need. Right? This would be a commodity back. It doesn't matter. Or I said, you know what? Here's what we're going to do. We're going to um, do an actual audit and see how much gold we have in, uh, in, in Fort Knox. And all other gold assets of the United States of America are going to be audited. And we're going to have a full accounting of it. And we're going to do the same thing with silver. And uh, we're going to have a monetary system, a bimetallic system. And we're going to issue dollars against the gold and silver at a ratio of X dollars to Y ounces. And it's ours. And here, everybody, go. And Federal Reserve, you don't get nothing. Goodbye. Then we would be a sovereign nation with our own currency. Okay, Until that happens, there's no way any nation can be debt-free. Because when you want money in your economy, you go, we need more money. You have to borrow it. That's how you create it. It's created through borrowing. So the wealthiest nation, the United States of America, has the most debt. Because every dollar is a certificate for a dollar of debt plus interest. If you really want to get an explanation on this, Check out Monetary Creation, uh, Google Monetary Creation Chris Martinson, and watch his videos on the crash course, specifically though the ones that re you know uh, relate to monetary creation. But the crash course by Chris Martinson explains this perfectly. It doesn't really go into the global nature of it, but if you understand how it works here and you understand it works the same way everywhere else, then you realize there's no way that any nation is not going to be sitting there with a bunch of debt. They, now, some have less debt than others in relation to their assets and their GDP, but they all have debt in order to have currency. It is the, it, 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 see, the, the, the method of creating currency is so simple that it's repelled by the mind. I can't think of who said that. Might have been Henry Ford. But it's true. Now, Ford was the guy that said if people understood it, there'd be a revolution in America tomorrow. That's what, that's what Ford said. Somebody else said that your mind is repelled by the simplicity of it. And I would add, and the absurdity of it. You want to make money in this country, you write a loan, and it creates money. When you go to buy a house, you go to the bank and say, I need $150,000 to buy this house. You think the bank takes $150,000 out of the bank and gives it to you. 
It doesn't. It writes a mortgage, creates a journal entry, and generates 150,000 new dollars. Governments do this with bonds at the federal level. And then it's done globally. And the, the beauty of this question, and as complex as it is, and as mile high as I had to stay over it to fit it in, and I'm done with it now, the reason I put it on is because Preston asked the most important question, who do they owe? Technically, they owe each other. But in reality, they owe the banking elites. They owe the Rothschilds. They owe the Morgans. They owe the Chases. And guess what? So do you. So do you. Slavery is likely to be abolished by the war power and all Chattel slavery abolished. This I and my European friends are in favor of, for slavery is but the owning of labor, and it carries with it the care of laborers. While the European plan, led on by England, is the capital, is that capital shall control labor by controlling wages. The great debt that the capitalists will see to, it is made out of war, must be used as a means to control the volume of money. To accomplish this, bonds must be used as a banking basis. We are now waiting for the Secretary of the Treasury to make this recommendation to Congress. It will not do to allow the greenback, as it's called, to circulate his money any length of time, as we cannot control that, but we can control the bonds, and through them, the bank issues. Hazard Circular, July 1862. Brought that quote back for you. Now it should mean more. Here's a simple question, and it goes into homesteading and solutions instead of all this monetary problem. Uh, Jack, is there anything wrong with making a woody bed months ahead of time of planting? I won't have much time to create woody beds next spring because my first child is expected here in March. I would like to build the beds now while I still have time, but I seem to recall something you said about the bed settling and becoming more compacted if you didn't plant soon enough. If I make this bed this fall, early winter, and mulch over them until planting, will I severely limit the ability of my plants to put down strong roots quickly? Would it be better to put down a cover crop like buckwheat instead of mulch? Thanks for all you do, Jeff. Um, I would tell you this. If you mulch the crap out of it, You'll get all kinds of soil life under there, and it probably won't compact that much, but it won't do as good as if you put a cover crop down. You just don't want to do buckwheat. You could do buckwheat right now. Like, if you build these things right now, you could do buckwheat, and you're going to have freezing temperatures soon enough to kill it in most places. Down here, I could probably do one run of buckwheat and something else before a frost. But the buckwheat won't stand through the winter. So what you want to do is you want to think about a winter cover crop to go with it. I would recommend maybe winter wheat, like a red hard winter wheat, uh, Austrian winter pea, uh, hairy vetch, uh, something that will handle you know the, at least the initial freezes and things like that, grow into a great big tangle and become mulch when it finally does frost kill, if it frost kills. You can then cut it and turn it in the, in the spring and do your planting. And that will be much better. And if you are in, a, in the south where you have time, I would do buckwheat. And then I would sow right into the buckwheat about two or three weeks before you want that next crop to start and maybe chop and drop the buckwheat at some point. So let's say I was going to do it here just to give you some, some, some days. So let's say I had a brand new bed right now and I wanted to, I didn't want to plant it with a fall garden. I just wanted to plant it with a cover crop and get it ready for spring. So what I would probably do in this heat, yeah, I'm probably doing buckwheat and cow pea or buckwheat and black eyed pea right now. And it will germinate in this heat and it'll start growing. It'll start growing like mad. Um, about the end of September, 
I'm going to go in there and I'm going to sow, let's say, vetch and uh, maybe uh, triticale, which is like a, a, a wheat rye cross that's sterile. So if it does go to seed, it won't become weedy for me. So maybe I go triticale, uh, which is very winter hardy, and vetch and Austrian pea. And I'll throw that right in there. And I'll let, I'll let the, the buckwheat and the cow pea continue to grow for another couple of weeks. And these little sprouts are starting to come up down there in the darkness and going, let us out, let us out. Here I'll probably go in with a sicket, and I will cut all the vetch and cow pea down and just drop it on top as a mulch and let that come up through. This does not take long to do. This is easy. If I'm starting later in the year, I'm going to go straight to like a winter pea vetch triticale mix. If you start late enough, your winter crops may not establish. And if that's the case, if you're doing this late enough into the fall winter, and even let's say you try it and they just kind of just, uh, and they just can't, it's just too cold too fast. Because these winter hardy crops can, a lot of them can handle frost. But they have to get established before the frost, or they just either die, or more likely they just like are lethargic. They grow like two inches, they just sit there like, I, I can't do it, man, I can't handle it. Right? So, If that happens, then just mulch the crap out of it, and it'll be fine. But I would try to get some root mass down in there, even if you didn't want to do all that. Let's say you're going to build the beds right now, and you threw buckwheat down, let's say buckwheat and cowpea. When the frost kills it, throw mulch on top of it. It'll be fine. But I would definitely try to get some sort of root mass in there that'll help with reducing compaction. It'll build organic matter for you. The cowpeas or the winter peas or vets will fix nitrogen for you as well. Uh, and we'll start that biological cycle so it's ready in spring to be up and active instead of just established. And this is actually a better plan than building your beds in spring because you have this like this inert, non-established system, and that's what most people do. And most people put it off and put it off and put it off, and they don't get the beds built until like May. And now you've got the heat coming, the plants aren't established, the biology's not established. It's what we did. We wanted to run a workshop, so you can definitely tell the difference between the beds that got established early and late. And they'll all do better next year because of what I'm talking about. Another quick kind of permaculture gardening, agriculture one. Jack, are primocane raspberries as heavy producers as standard raspberries? I've only read about them and I've never seen them. I have the, I've seen some in your videos. I'm interested in your experience. I'm interested in them for my food forest. However, they more, are more of light producers that would be a good mix for fresh eating. Should, should I would blend more with a larger mix of spring producers for canning If they are good producers, I can easily see a 50-50 mix and then spread my processing into the two seasons. Uh, John. John, um, here's the thing. Primocanes do not produce as much fruit in a cycle as a floricane. Uh, primocane means one cane, first-year cane. Floricane means second-year cane. But they can. They can. If you, if you manage them almost like floricanes. So what happens with a primocane is it fruits on its first-year cane. But then that cane will fruit in the second year as well. So what happens is after you've got the plant established, you get a spring crop and a fall crop. And then you can manage it like you would a conventional raspberry, which means you take out the third-year canes, which would be equivalent to the second-year canes elsewhere, and then it cycles again. You get a spring and a fall crop. Your spring crop will be a heavier crop. Most people that grow primocanes, though, do it for simplicity. So they either just chop it at a certain level and let the dead cane sort themselves out, or they go right to the ground with it, just a couple inches above the ground, and cut it out and let it come back year after year after year. And you get a light fruiting in the spring and a heavier fruiting in the fall. My personal results so far are lackluster. I planted them with Jerusalem artichokes. 
I underestimated the aggressiveness of the Jerusalem artichokes. I don't know if they're alive inside there. I think they might all be dead. We'll see when we harvest the chokes if the, the blackberry crowns are, are doing well. And if they are, if they're still alive, we'll move them to a different location. Uh, but but uh, a polyculture of artichokes, Jerusalem artichokes, sunchokes, and blackberries did not work. If you're looking something for something that will choke out blackberry, it is Jerusalem artichoke. It will do it. Um, so that, that didn't work. Uh, next year we might try running uh, APS Americana or groundnut in with the artichokes and let it climb up as a climber. And I think that will be much more effective. Eric Tosemeyer, who co-wrote uh, uh, Edible Forest Gardens with Dave Jackie, uh, is experimenting with that and some other things they're calling the three brothers. I don't remember. It's like Chinese artichoke, Jerusalem artichoke, and APS Americana. And the Chinese artichoke is not doing real well in there. And I can tell you why. You don't need a ground cover. You don't need a ground cover with Jerusalem artichoke. But the apius, the uh, the ground nut climbing, if I can get some of these big things that are like half the size of a potato uh, for ground nut next year, we'll try that. And I think that'll work because it can climb up and still get light and use the bushy nature of the artichoke. So um, primacanes, I would say definitely make them part of what you're doing. And remember, you never have to live with any decision with a berry bush. You can always replace it. But a 50-50 mix is probably a good way to go. Extending that season is a big part of what it's all about. And, man, just a few conventional blackberries like Ozark or something like that can produce so many uh, that I, I really don't think you need that many bushes for personal use. depends on, you know, what you mean by canning. If you're canning it to make jam to sell at the farmer's market, you may be better suited to go with more conventional raspberries or blackberries. And the reason is, you actually then want all your harvest at one time. Now, there are ways to build up harvests for use, like let's say you want to make a blackberry wheat beer, and you have this primocane berry, and it's fruiting, and there's a couple right here, and a couple right there, and a couple right there, and next day there's a few more, and the next day there's a few more, and you don't ever get enough in one day. Well, you just freeze them until you build up. And you probably will get 70% of the yield out of a, a, a primocane over a floricane, but you'll get it over a longer period of time. And they do not produce as much, in my experience and in my research. Um, got another one for you. Um, this is one of those things that you go, <laughs> because it's so true. But it's a good way to share what the government's doing as far as spying on you with other people. It's called GetPRISM, G-E-T-P-R-S-M dot com, GetPRISM.com. And the front page says, introducing a brand new way to share everything. And there's a thing to learn more. And it says, no ads whatsoever. Unlimited storage. 320 million strong. That's the population of the United States, by the way. You click on learn more, and it kind of tours you around this thing. And it's marketed like it's a Web 2.0 share thingy. But, of course, PRISM is the government program to monitor every single thing you do. And uh, if you go check this site out, like I said, you'll laugh and sigh. You might even shed a tear. And as you, uh, you scroll down, uh, it says, don't ever worry about not sharing again. And they've got these little icons that sell you everything that you share. Purchases, internet searches, email, blog posts, TV shows watched, photos uploaded, locations, phone calls, videos watched, texts, social media, and more. Instantly upload trillions of megabytes of data, really fast computers. Our Titan supercomputer is capable of handling one quadrillion requests a second. Really big computers. Our data store can store up to five zettabytes of information. This, of course, is the data center that's in Salt Lake City, Utah. Key partners, Google, Facebook, Apple, Yahoo, Skype, AOL, 
AT&T, right? So they've got that there. It's just like you scroll down and see this. Share to your heart's content. It says sign up now. And since I know it's a parody site, I clicked on sign up now. And it says, uh-oh, looks like there's already an account associated with this device and or user. In other words, you don't have to join. You're already a member. But if you're not sure about it, you can contact technical support. And when you click on contact technical support, it takes you to the Electronic Frontier Foundation's website where it talks about a massive spying program by the NSA that has been exposed and asks you to demand answers now. So this is a clever way um, to use a, a parody website to explain to people what's going on, and I wanted to share it with you. Uh, again, it's called Get Prism, and Prism is P-R-S-M dot com, and uh, absolutely this stuff's going on. Uh, Thanks to people like Edward Snowden, not only do we know it, but we have verification on it by people that really do know. Um, and if it wasn't true, if it wasn't true, they wouldn't be out to pin him to the wall, would they? Or they wouldn't have just thrown Bradley Manning in prison for, what, 35 years or something like that? It's a disgrace, man. It really is. These people, their crime is telling the American people the truth. Um, if you want to share this with uh this is kind of an interesting way to do it. Not everybody's going to get it, um, but I think a lot of people might. And I think a lot of people that... Won't get it when you actually explain it to them. Might, it might, here's the thing you have to understand about sharing things like this with people. Don't expect them to go, holy crap, tell me more. A lot of times they go, eh. But did you stick a little bitty seed inside of them and they start to wonder about it and they go, eh, he's crazy. But you don't know what's going on when they're going, is this true? This can't be true. And they ask somebody that they know, that maybe they trust more than you, that actually does know, and they say, oh, yeah. Or they start doing an Internet search, and it's so in your face, and they start to realize it is true. We have to awaken people to the truth about what's going on. It's a big part of establishing solutions. As long as people think everything's okay, they'll allow oppression to continue. As long as they feel like, as long as I'm comfortable, things are good, and they don't realize what's being done to others, they'll allow evil to continue. Or one famous quote, all that is necessary for evil to triumph is for good people to do nothing. Main reason that good people are doing nothing today is because it's not just apathy. They really don't know. They really can't believe it. They've been so conditioned to believe that we are the freest nation in the world, that everything we do is wonderful, that they can't accept the reality. And it takes little pieces, little seeds, one at a time, to slowly reach in and to make the human mind turn the logic on. And once the logic process starts, everything begins to tear down. That's why the biggest thing the people in power fear is the information that's being brought out by alternative media now. Because it's too much, they can't stop it, it's too late. All they can do is use counter-propaganda. You know, there's a good chance, there's a good chance that Manning or Snowden might be a plant. You know, we don't know. Manning might be sitting somewhere in Tahiti right now. I doubt it, but it's possible. Don't think they wouldn't do it. Don't think they wouldn't put somebody out and destroy them as a false flag. I'm not saying they did, and somebody will say I'm, I'm saying that. I'm just saying it's possible. Snowden might be sitting down on the Black Sea in the Ukraine right now, chilling out and drinking, and talking to the CIA or the NSA about what to leak next. You don't know. Because as bad as it is for them for the information to come out, it's good for them when it destroys the person that brings the information out. It puts fear. And people in society today have come to believe something that couldn't be less true. Whoever wins is right. 
Why do you think in the old westerns the good guy always got the girl and rode off in the sunset? It's Hollywood conditioning that the person that wins is right, that might makes right. History is full of times when the person that was right did win. And history is full of times when the person that was right lost. It's the other side of the equation no one wants to talk about. Well, your society you live in believes that the winner is right. It doesn't work that way. We have to start judging right based on what's really right, based on natural, individual rights. I think this website is one way to start getting people to at least start asking the right questions. That indeed is the first step in the right place, the right direction. I'm going to finish up with something pretty uh, inspirational today. Someone sent it to me named Jerry. It's called the Mayonnaise Jar. And when I read this, I thought, this didn't happen. Because there's stuff like this all the time. You know, a history student, a history teacher was teaching this. A college professor was doing that and said, you know, take, you, know you all get C's and that's socialism or whatever. Most of these stories never occurred. I looked this one up. Turns out it did occur. It wasn't a professor. It was somebody running a business entrepreneur seminar. Um, and I'm going to actually put a link to the video where this really happens. And I'd say it's 95% accurately reported, other again that it's not a professor, professor in a philosophy class, but I'm going to read it the way it was sent to me. And it's kind of interesting to see how these things morph on the Internet and change. And I wonder how far this will change. And the, the thing said at the very end is not exactly true, but let me read it to you because any way about it, and oh, there's two cups of coffee in the story, and there's really not two cups of coffee in, in the video. There's one. Okay, so when things in your life seem almost too much to handle, when 24 hours a day just is not enough, remember the mayonnaise jar and two cups of coffee. Again, it's one cup of coffee. A professor, a seminar leader, <laughs> stood before his philosophy class, stood before a group of, of people that came to the seminar, and had some items in front of him. When the class began, wordlessly, he picked up a very large empty mayonnaise jar and fills it with golf balls. He then asked the students if the jar was full. They agreed it was. The professor then picked up a box of pebbles and poured it into the jar. He shook the jar lightly. The pebbles rolled into the open areas between the golf balls. He then asked the students again if the jar was full. They agreed that it was. No, no they didn't. The people in the video were smart enough that they went like, no, we don't know what you're going to do next. But we, we, we've... So the people in the real video where this really happened weren't as gullible as the rewritten version of it. The professor next picked up a box of sand and poured it into the jar, and of course the sand filled up everything else. He then asked once more if the jar was full. The students responded with a unanimous yes. No, the students responded with a unanimous no. In fact, one suggested water. So I'm giving you the revision this version at the same time as I give you the actual version. The professor, seminar leader, actually, uh, then produced two cups of coffee from under the table. One cup of coffee that was on top of the table, by the way. And poured the entire contents into the jar, effectively filling the empty space between the sand. The students laughed. Actually, he spilled a lot of coffee on himself when he did it. Now, said the professor, as the laughter subsided, this is pretty, pretty accurate. I won't even change anything here because it's so close to the truth until you get to the end. I want you to recognize this jar represents your life. The golf balls are the important things. God, family, children, health, friends, and favorite passions. Things that if everything else was lost and only they remained, your life would still be full. The pebbles are the things that matter, like your job, your house, your car. The sand is everything else, the small stuff. He said, if you put the sand in the jar first, there's no room for the pebbles or the golf balls. The same goes for life. If you spend all your time and energy on the small stuff, You'll never have room for things that are important to you. So pay attention to the things that are critical to your happiness. 
Worship with your family, play with your children, take your partner out for dinner, spend time with good friends. There will always be time to clean the house or fix a dripping, uh, the dripping tap later. Take care of the golf balls first, the things that really matter. Set your priorities, the rest is just sand. One of the students raised their hand and inquired as to what the coffee represented. This is where somebody revised the actual story. The professor smiled and said, I'm glad you asked. It just goes to show you that no matter how full your life may seem, there's always room for a couple of cups of coffee with a friend. Please share this with other golf balls. Uh, Jerry. Uh, so I don't know why somebody felt the need to rewrite this, except I can tell you at the end they put two cups of coffee in the jar so they could, they could change this and make this little nice thing. But what the guy says is there's always time in life for a good cup of coffee. Maybe Mai Tai coffee. You guys should check out Mai Tai Coffee if you haven't yet. There's a discount in the MSB for you guys on it. But um, this is this is great. And it's what I talk about, and it's much more eloquently illustrated than what I talk about with Circle of Influence and Circle of Concern. In our lives, there's all these things that we care about. And they include things like the government destroying the economy. I Trust me, I care about that. But I have no influence And don't tell me voting for, you know, I don't know, Mitt Romney or John McCain would really change that, because I know it won't, right? So, or who, who, God, who knows next time, Jeb Bush or some stupid crap like that. Anything's better than Biden! <laughs> Get ready, guys. Get ready, it's coming. Anything's better than Biden, whatever. Yeah, uh, maybe, I don't know. That's not the point, right? But I can't really influence that. Now, what I can influence is others' understanding of, of what that means, so that they're more prepared to deal with it. So I focus there. But I can definitely influence how my wife feels by, by, you know, when I get done with the show, going into her office and, and saying, stop what you're doing for a minute and giving her a hug and a kiss. I can have a great deal of influence on whether or not I'm able to produce food in my own backyard. I can make sure that when somebody needs me, that I'm here. I can work with a guy like Patrick Rohrman and help him go from wage slave to financial independence in a day. I focus on that circle of influence. That's the stuff I actually control. This is taking it to another level. Because I can influence whether or not my faucet drips. But when it comes to priority, I think I'm going to go hug my wife first. If that makes sense. So this is awesome. And uh, I think that the, the people that, that did the seminar where this was actually done, uh, they call it the Jar of Life, the Mayonnaise Jar Lesson, and it's done by people called Clickonomics.com. So they're really a, a group that trains people to build businesses on the Internet is what it looks like to me. I'll put a link to their website and to this video in today's show notes. But, that's I, you know, occasionally I get something to close on a Wednesday with that's really perfect, that really says this is how we should be living our lives. And that's it, guys. Understand your priorities and what they're right about with this. And I, I can't vouch for this company one way or another. I, I really can't. But, man, talk about a home run. If you put a lot of things into your life that don't really matter, you won't have room for the things to do. And with that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do it.